Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. Good morning, and welcome to the Journal Star podcast. I'm Chris Kiergaard. Joining me today is State Representative Jahan Gordon Booth, Assistant Majority Leader in the House, and one of the four architects behind the legislation that just passed the House that, starting in January 2020, will legalize adult-use marijuana in Illinois. Jahan, thank you for being here. Thank you for having me, Chris. Appreciate it. Absolutely. Now, I, I want to talk about some of the, the elements in this bill that are really critical to Peoria and to some communities of need yes. uh, that, that you worked hard on, on getting into that legislation. One of the key pieces of that is is a reinvestment program, the R3 program, that, that's going to spend a, thir- a quarter, I'm sorry, of, of the tax revenue on communities that have been hard hit by the war on drugs. Explain what that program is. So... <clears throat> When I think about when approaching the issue of um, legalization of cannabis, I think that oftentimes when people think about this issue, they just think about it from the perspective of people just having the ability to uh, partake in the usage of um, THC THC products. I look at cannabis, the legalization of cannabis, not just from that perspective, but from mm-hmm. the, but really much more so from the perspective of what we have the ability to do around. Um, criminal justice mm-hmm. reform, equity, and community reinvestment. And so specifically what you speak of as it relates to the R3 program, mm-hmm. the recovery, uh, recover, restore, renew, R3. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, the objective is that is to do exactly what you said. It's to take 25% of the uh, tax split with mm-hmm. the legalization of cannabis and reinvest those resources back into communities that have been divested in communities that have been ignored for the last 80 years during this war on drugs. And so we could not have a real conversation about the legalization of cannabis without talking about the very real harm that's been done in communities across this state. Mm-hmm. Um, and when you look at how you rebuild communities, obviously it's going to it's going to require a plan. Mm-hmm. That plan should be localized to that specific community, but those resources have to be significant and they have to be concentrated around mm-hmm. key areas uh, of need within that community. And so uh, with this program, what we're doing is we're taking these proceeds and we're putting them, we're, we are uh, doubling down on our investments in um, divested communities, mm-hmm. uh, black communities, brown communities, low-income communities that have mm-hmm. Um, that are in dire need of support. Um, They need to know that government sees what they're dealing with and what Mm -hmm. they're managing, which is why that was a very key component of this bill to me and why uh, I'm incredibly proud that we were able to get that as one of the cornerstones of this important, not just legalization legislation, but equity mm-hmm. legislation. And, and what, we're, what we're talking about there is addressing not just problems of violence, but of unemployment, of, of uh, reduced of housing stock. Legal, of, legal aid mm-hmm. issues, um, community development, economic development. Mm-hmm. And so the reason why this is incredibly important is because in a mature market, We'll have a mature market in three to five years. Mm-hmm. In a mature market, the R three program will be invest will be reinvesting around a hundred and twenty five million dollars every year. Mm-hmm. 
We should like and it, let it, that it, sit. It's, it's continuing, continuous throughout the the process. Abso- yeah, absolutely. Like let mm-hmm. that sit for a moment. Above and beyond the other resources that we are sending to communities, we are additionally adding another one hundred twenty-five million dollars to those key specific areas that we know that our communities lack right mm-hmm. now. And so, uh, again, that that component of the bill is critical. So what we're going to do is we. Um, there'll be a board that will come together this summer mm-hmm. and that board that will be chaired by Lieutenant Governor Juliana Stratton uh, within 60 days. They're then going to draw what the R3 communities will look like. We think it's important that we have uh, a very important equity and justice lens because those communities are going to be the communities that are going to be the recipients of mm-hmm. said resources uh, also, within 60 days, there will be another board that is composed. So the first iteration of that mm-hmm. board is like most boards, you'll have um, appointees from the governor, the speaker, mm-hmm. the minority leader, uh, the Senate, the House minority leader, the Senate minority leader, ex- mm-hmm. Senate president, yeah. et cetera. Mm-hmm. So that's what like your typical boards look like. But the second iteration of that board, which will be composed 60 days later, that does not look like your typical board. Okay. Those folks will be man formerly incarcerated from the ages of 22 to 35 okay. woman formerly incarcerated so, so people who have experienced this and, and know from going back into the communities what's needed there. absolutely so mm-hmm. the goal was to make this as community and as people centric as possible mm-hmm. and to make sure that the folks on the ground that know the issues in communities mm-hmm. have the ability to not just have a voice because they have their maybe their Facebook page or their mm-hmm. whatever their social media platform of their liking, but will actually have a voice at the table, mm-hmm. helping to make the decisions as it relates to where these resources are going to go. I think that that's mm-hmm. critical, that's pivotal, and I've never seen that during my time in the legislature. It's really very different. It, it is. Mm-hmm. It, it's it's different in a good way. Yeah. Right. It's different in a way that we are actually doing what a lot of people talk about, and mm-hmm. that is being inclusive. Of our entire of the entirety of our community, particularly when we know that one in four Illinoisans, four million Illinoisans right now, is walking around with a record or mm-hmm. a conviction, and so having these folks at the table because they represent about a quarter of the population, mm-hmm. it's important to have their voices at the table. And so I am, I'm excited that we were able to you know to to think through this concept and how it could work because all this just started as an idea. Yeah. But to actually see it come to fruition in mm-hmm. policy, it's incredibly exciting. Yeah. Yeah. I, I was reading an article this morning in Forbes that I'm sure you've seen <laughs> about the difficulties New York and New Jersey have had in, in legislative legalization programs. And it was a columnist who said that Illinois managed to make them look like a joke by getting this done in one session with some hard work. But I think it, the word the word that they used was a dork. Dork. There, there you go. <laughs> I, I'm familiar. Familiar with the oh, article. Yeah. <laughs> and the expression. Yes. <laughs> I cracked up. When oh, I saw yeah. that yesterday. <laughs> now, now these, these are these are a combination of, of state programs and aid to local programs yes. that are, are working on this. So, so in in looking at at areas around Peoria, because we have some communities here that are very clearly hard hit with disinvestment. Yes. What what are some of those programs that you would look toward and and maybe counsel them? look at getting in this program yes. or, or some things that are being done now that you think can be amped up? So I would say folks um, that are doing work on the ground, like you have folks who have been doing a lot of work for any number of years, um, you know, your PCCEOs, your urban leagues, um, your boys and girls clubs, organizations mm-hmm. like that that have been around 
years and years and years. But you also have some really good local groups mm-hmm. that may not be sort of in that grant space, mm-hmm. but they're also putting in the work. Like uh, folks like Change Peoria, mm-hmm. uh, Black Justice Project, like those are organizations that are putting in work on the ground. Mm-hmm. And I think it's important to identify and lift up both, right? Mm-hmm. You need those uh, those more seasoned organizations that have been doing this work for a long time, but you also need those organizations that have that new energy mm-hmm. and they're really getting after it and they're getting to many of the ills that we're that we're facing in our community and they're challenging it. Uh, and if we collectively embrace the entirety of our community, it makes us better. Mm-hmm. How do we measure the success of these programs? Because we're, we're talking about, as you said, an awful lot of money, $125 million mm-hmm. annually you're, you're projecting for this. How do we measure what success looks like after three or five or 10 years? So, so what we're doing is is we've discussed sort of what that mm-hmm. is. Um, that also came into conversation as it related to how we would um, how we would even manage it. I mean, there mm-hmm. were there were there were folks uh, who shall remain nameless who felt like this was something that should only go on for two years. Mm-hmm. And I said, that's a gimmick. That's not mm-hmm. real. That's not real and true community reinvestment. If we're going to do something for twenty years, and we're doing it under the auspices that these communities, these disproportionately impacted areas, have been marginalized and divested in for eighty years, to mm-hmm. do that for two years only isn't it? Isn't real? And I don't want any. I don't want any part of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that's not what we're doing. So we're likely going to end up doing. We're going to end up doing a look back four to five years from now mm-hmm. to ensure that we are making inroads and we're actually making Mm -hmm. dents in the real issues that we're facing. One of the other issues that was paramount was also um, how do we craft the areas, right? Mm -hmm. So looking at legal aid, housing, um, communities impacted by violence, violence prevention programs. We wanted to give autonomy to allow folks that regardless of what the issues are of that community and Mm -hmm. whatever the most pressing issues are, give communities the ability to have the autonomy to do what they need for their community, but also wanting to um, direct those resources mm-hmm. so that when we're looking back at, so these are the these are the activities, the, these are the organizations that we funded under economic development work. Mm-hmm. These are the organizations that we funded under violence prevention. And then go mm-hmm. back and look at the data. Okay. Right? Look at mm-hmm. data trends in those areas. What are the things, what are the tangible noticeable things and the change that have happened Mm -hmm. in those communities over this period of time. And you have to give communities time to one, understand this process two to really be able to implement uh, local strategies with Mm -hmm. fidelity. And so that takes, you know, three to five years before you can see any real data changes. Mm -hmm. And so I look forward to that. Um, My hope, my goal, um, our aspiration in doing this is that we believe that the wisdom is already in the room. Mm-hmm. The people that need to be there are already in some way, shape, form, or fashion already at the table. Oftentimes, they just need uh, the power and the resources and the sort of the convening that we will be able to do through R3 mm-hmm. to bring best practices along um, to get the result that we want to mm-hmm. see in communities. Um, for example, you know, as you know, a lot of the work that our office has been doing around the area of expungement. Mm-hmm. This is not an area that is new, but it takes someone to sort of step into this, mm-hmm. to step into that space. Um, oftentimes, there are, you know, folks who could be doing expungement, but they don't have the resources mm-hmm. to do um, 
you know, large scale expungements in that mm-hmm. way that require resources. So, for example, with this policy measure, you know, there will be able there potentially could be much more large scale expungement mm-hmm. being done ab- above and beyond the cannabis space. Mm-hmm. Right. Because right. in as you know, um, we are expunging over 770,000 mm-hmm. uh, convictions as mm-hmm. a result of this one policy. Mm-hmm. That was another very important issue for me. As you know, like I said, we've done expungement summits over the last three years mm-hmm. in this district. And it was very interesting, like around the same time that um, I started working on this policy with um, Representative Cassidy in the House was around the same time I was working on the expungement summits and mm-hmm. getting that first summit up yeah. and going. And, it, you know, there's something to be said about When you when you when you're walking in what you feel like your purpose is, mm-hmm. and things begin, God sort of unveils things before you, mm-hmm. and I, I really felt like that. And I, I say that to say, during our first expungement summit, I saw men and women, grown men and women in their 50s and 60s weeping mm-hmm. you know weeping because they felt like they had a new lease on life mm-hmm. they felt like I, there was a a 78 year old man who told who could not could barely talk and he said if if something like this would have happened for me 40 50 years ago i would have had a different life mm-hmm. and my children would have had a different life right and all the work that we do, you know, the, the goal is always to, to do the most mm-hmm. good. And you pass, you know, we work on bills, we pass legislation, but very rarely do you get to see how the policy impacts the person mm-hmm. on the ground like you do with expungement. And to know that through this policy, there will be hundreds of thousands of those folks mm-hmm. that I'll never see, that I'll never experience. Mm-hmm. But we know that as a result of this policy, their lives are, mm-hmm. their lives are going to be changed and their children's lives are going to be changed. Because what we know from the data is that when you have a conviction, you're calcified in poverty. Right. You're not making more than $10 an hour. You're, you're condemned to a low-wage job, which affects where you live, where your kids can go to school, what you can eat. The, the, mm-hmm. the, the number one data point that schools and education leaders look at as it relates to how successful a child is going to be in school is – the wage that their family earns, their mm-hmm. mother, their mother or father, or their guardian earns. Mm-hmm. So when we know that folks are adults, parents are calcified in poverty, we are also subjecting their children mm-hmm. to that same life. And so knowing that we will have the ability to literally impact hundreds of thousands of people with this policy through an automatic expungement process, that was critically important to us. Um, negotiating this bill because what we know is that even when even when you make changes to expungement policy or or Mm -hmm. expanding it as we have in the last few years Mm -hmm. what we know from data is that only about three to five percent of the population actually access Mm -hmm. right um those that that expungement relief and so when we think about who those three to five percent are again we're not getting to the very people by which we are trying to change this law in order to help better their lives. Mm-hmm. And so going through this automatic expungement process, working with um, the state police who mm-hmm. were at the table negotiating the entire mm-hmm. time, 
um, who clearly is 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 committed to doing this work in a very real way. Um, mm-hmm. Director Brendan Riley's he's mm-hmm. also it's it's amazing because he's a former um, St. Clair County prosecutor, yeah. mm-hmm. right? I mean, what better what better person could you have running the state police now? Mm-hmm. He used to, he used to be a part of expungement summits. Mm-hmm. Right. And mm-hmm. so in, in his own county. And so he gets it. Um, having someone like that leading the state police, knowing the critical role that the state police are going to are going to mm-hmm. play in terms of identifying uh, the network of individuals mm-hmm. that are going to qualify for this. Right. And as I understand the process, the state police identify those people who are eligible, ones who have misdemeanor or or down to class four yep. felony convictions are eligible then those lists go to the the state's attorneys in the counties that that those people live in. Then the state's attorneys are able to say yes or we still got a problem. And then that list goes to the Prisoner Review Board, which says okie dokie, and moves it on to the governor who signs the expungements, right? So the state's attorneys will not have the ability to challenge – expungements under 30 grams okay so but so it will those will go directly they'll be i mean they will touch the process but Mm -hmm. they won't be able to um they won't be able to object those will go directly to Mm -hmm. prb where they will be able to object are those folks so two and a half years ago we decriminalized up to 500 grams Mm -hmm. right so up to 30 grams up until two and a half years ago that was considered a felony Mm. So we have about a two and a half year window mm-hmm. of folks who fall in that 30 grams to 500, mm-hmm. more than 30 grams, but yeah. under 500 grams category as being mm-hmm. um, where you would get your felony. Mm-hmm. But for the most part, folks, up until two and a half years ago, you were getting a felony for two and a mm-hmm. half. Uh, excuse me. Up until two and a half years ago, you were getting a felony for anything above um, 30 grams. Mm-hmm. And so there are a lot of folks sort of in the, many more yeah. folks in that mm-hmm. window than in the ab- over 30, under 500. Mm-hmm. But that over 30, above 500, up to 500, state's attorneys will have the ability okay. to um, weigh in and, and, on those and that, cases. That, what is that weighing in on? And, and here's why I ask you, and I have talked before, that there, there have been some concerns with some of the expungement processes so far, where you've got everybody qualifies. They've They've kept their nose clean. They haven't had other legal problems. They've been good citizens. But there have been state's attorneys or other county officials who said, well, wait a minute. They still have some court fees to pay. Mm-hmm. We're not going to get rid of this conviction until their court fees are taken care so, of. Is, is that a concern here? Um, I would say that, you know, <laughs> if they want, everybody's watching. Mm-hmm. Right. So I'll just leave it like everyone is Mm -hmm. watching. And what we can't have is a state where you have massive disparities as it relates to who's able to get relief. Mm -hmm. Um, That those individuals that I sort of laid out above 30, under 500, um, the majority of those are also in Cook. Mm -hmm. And in in Cook, you have uh, State's Attorney Fox, you Mm -hmm. have um, Chief Judge Tim Evans. As well as Clerk Brown, who mm-hmm. are who, and, and so your your clerks, your state's attorneys, and your chief judges, they're all going to play very, very critical mm-hmm. roles roles in what this looks like. Right. Um, when court will when mm-hmm. court will be who's objected to, who's not objected mm-hmm. to, and so I would say that in a way, 
much more so in a way than like maybe some local person deciding mm-hmm. to do an expungement summit. You were the the eyes of the state are going mm-hmm. to be on counties mm-hmm. because clearly the intent of the law and there, as as you know, at one point uh, there was conversation around whether or not this policy was con- uh, constitutional. Right. Right. And, we and, did, and you made changes yeah. to and we did our that. Right, we did our yeah. work. Mm-hmm. We wanted to make sure, so we sat down with, um, we, we sat down with stakeholders, local guy, mm-hmm. um, Matt Jones, mm-hmm. who is um, the executive director of the State's Attorneys Association, and he sat down and thoroughly went through, like, here are the issues mm-hmm. with the bill. And I'm telling you, you know, he was very clear, as Matt is. Mm-hmm. <laughs> very thorough. Very, very thorough. Like, mm-hmm. these are the problems with the bill. Um if you continue down this road, here are probably a couple things that'll mm-hmm. happen. Yeah. And so um, he wasn't the only actor, mm-hmm. right, at right, the table right. that was saying that. And we we took it seriously. And mm-hmm. we wanted this to be, we didn't just want to talk to people who agreed with us. Mm-hmm. We wanted to talk to folks that disagreed. Um, whether or not they ever became a supporter of mm-hmm. this policy, we thought that their voices at the table were important. Mm-hmm. Oftentimes, you know, when you're negotiating something, it's just one big echo chamber of people mm-hmm. who all think the same thing, and then yeah. you work out, mm-hmm. you work out some policy without dissenting voices at the table. Mm-hmm. That definitely wasn't this. So we were able to um, ensure that the expungement policy was done in a way mm-hmm. that was one constitutional, and two, in a way that should have um, similar impact all over the state. Mm-hmm. And so, again, to your point. Um, you you can't you cannot legislate everything mm-hmm. in a bill. So that's one of those pieces that you know people will, mm-hmm. people will be watching. Yeah, and I, I presume people will also be speaking out over the next six months or a year if oh. if they see some inequality there or, or or an issue in one of these counties that that somebody is is being entirely too. Literal on everything. I would, I would, I would agree with that. Mm-hmm. Um, this is, I mean, not just citizens in the state of Illinois. The reality of it is, is it, we just indicated mm-hmm. Forbes, like the world is watching. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, the world is watching to see what this looks like. And one of the things that I said continuously um, throughout this process, and particularly when we ran the bill, um, I sort of closed on this. This is not the beginning. Or this is not the ending. Mm-hmm. This is just the beginning of what of the work that has to be done in this space. Um, we are going to have to continue. My guess, like most other things that we work on, we're going to have to continue to work on tweaks, mm-hmm. changes um, over the years. I mean, like think about this for a second. Um, alcohol was legalized in 1928. I don't remember a year. Since I've been in the <laughs> Illinois General Assembly, there, there's always some bill. There's always mm-hmm. some bill dealing with the issue of alcohol. Mm-hmm. You know, we are literally, we are literally from 1928 until 20. Like there was a mm-hmm. craft brewer bill mm-hmm. <laughs> that came through the GA this year, mm-hmm. 80 some odd years later, and so um, the work is just beginning mm-hmm. in this space, not just around um, legalization from the standpoint of the industry, but the community investment opportunities, the equity space, as well as the justice reform, Mm -hmm. we are going to have to continue to work and ensure that justice 
is not just for a few, but for the many. And the equity issue is something that, that's been particularly big for you in this last legislative session. Uh, you, you've worked on on material related to that, dealing with uh, with other elements that, that mm-hmm. got worked into the budget and into the, the capital budget, uh, in, into, into the marijuana legislation on, on requiring minority participation in the industry itself, opening the door for, for uh, participation in, by people in those hard-hit communities. Mm-hmm. So talk about that and then talk about some of the other budget and capital bill okay. equity elements. Um. What I would say is 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 specifically talking about the issue of cannabis legalization. Mm-hmm. You can't create an industry where wealthy men in suits carrying briefcases are going to get incredibly rich. And at the same time, you either have one people um, facing convictions or in jail mm-hmm. for those things. Um, for that same for that same um, activity, and you can't create. And two, you can't create an industry that isn't reflective of the entirety of the community. So you can't. We would be we would not be doing our jobs if we codified into law that basically the rich people who typically get rich in these spaces can continue to get rich while other folks only get, which is not small by any mm-hmm. stretch of the imagination, while other communities only get expungement. Mm-hmm. That's That too would be inequitable. Mm-hmm. So we have to have, we have to be talking about essentially what the, the three pillars of this bill, community reinvestment, criminal justice reform, but also real equity in the bill. So if you look at the medical industry, Medical in Illinois is viewed as the gold standard around the country mm-hmm. as it relates to medical, believe it or not. <laughs> I see the chuckle. There, there, there's some things Illinois can do, okay. <laughs> hey, listen, and this is this is one of them too. Mm-hmm. But in the medical industry, um, we are considered the gold standard. The way, and what that means is the way that we regulate mm-hmm. um, medical. What you don't see coming out of Illinois and that you don't see in other states is you don't see a bunch of leakage from mm-hmm. our cannabis industry. And that's really how you... Um, that's how folks in the industry sort of determine success. Mm -hmm. Do you see leakage of that product in other states? And in Illinois, we are one of 33 states that has a medical program. So when you think about that for a moment, right, you Mm -hmm. take a step back, people should know we're not, maybe 10 years ago, we would really be stepping out on a limb Mm -hmm. with this cannabis legalization, (laughs) but 33 states have some form of uh, legalization through medical. Mm-hmm. We're the 11 states to do it through recreation. So when you look at the medical industry that um, exists in almost all states, or at least a third of the state, mm-hmm. uh, more than two yeah, thirds of the states, of the states yeah. and we are the gold standard for that as it relates to regulation, what we are not the gold standard in is diversity. And the diversity that did not happen in the medical industry is largely because we did not have an equity-centered conversation as it related to who would be participating in the sort of the economic mm-hmm. largesse right. of cannabis, not just from a consumer perspective, mm-hmm. but from the industry perspective. And, and that, it, that, 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 pardon me for interrupting, that, that's both on the growing end and on the sales end, right? C to sale. From mm-hmm. C to sale, what we, what we centered 
in this policy is that there has to be equity from seed to sale. So mm-hmm. from cultivation to dispensary, uh, cultivation owners, dispensary owners, um, how many people, what your staff looks like, mm-hmm. um, craft grows, infusers, security, transportation. Mm-hmm. So every single space within this policy had an equity lens on it mm-hmm. because that is the only what I've learned through my time uh, of, of being a policymaker. If you're not intentional about equity, it's not going to happen. Mm-hmm. It just it's not right. And we can folks have great intentions, but the the outgrowth of those intentions mm-hmm. doesn't always translate. And so um, what we did with this policy is we in order to make it not just lip service, we codified mm-hmm. into the law that if you are a social equity applicant, meaning you are a person that um, comes from a disproportionately impacted area, mm-hmm. DIAs are communities that have, um, you have numbers of high um, high amounts of SNAP recipients, high amounts of um, individuals that are unemployed, um, communities that have seen disproportionate amounts of Cannabis, not just arrests, Mm -hmm. but convictions, high amounts of returning citizens, Mm -hmm. you know, folks that are that are returning to home from uh, a time uh, of incarceration. Mm -hmm. So we are looking. So we pulled out those communities. Obviously, Peoria would be one of those Mm -hmm. communities. Um, Folks that social equity applicants coming from those disproportionately impacted areas would then have. And then if you have the, so here's the key, you as an applicant would be able to have to draw a nexus to that community, Mm -hmm. rather it be you or a family member that has been impacted by this, by -hmm. these things. You then would then qualify as a social equity applicant. As a social equity applicant, you are going to get 20% 20% of the core points mm-hmm. as a social equity applicant. Um, that's that's critical. Like we, mm-hmm. You can't say, okay, only this community gets the, mm-hmm. get the license. That's, right. that and, would be and, and in this case, it's not not a guarantee that people get it, but it, it's an effort to lower level the playing field so that they can be competitive Absolutely. with the other applicants. You, 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 are, you are now incredibly competitive and Another applicant, okay, so say you're not a social equity applicant, you still, people still have to have the ability mm-hmm. to be able to actualize those points. And so you have to show um, that your staff mm-hmm. is going to be diverse, right. the, and not just diverse, your staff would then need to come from some of those mm-hmm. disproportionately impacted areas. So without being specific to race, we were able to get to the fact that people come, there are so many people that come from communities that have been ravaged by the war on mm-hmm. drugs, and if we created a policy that is not with intentionality pulling those folks into this industry, we wouldn't be we would not be doing our jobs. That's one piece of it. The uh, another really important component of um, having an equ- an equity center policy was that um, in the medical industry, one of the things that folks had to do was you had to be able to have your real estate in advance of the application. Mm-hmm. So again, what you're saying is. Only the wealthy yeah, there, should apply. There's an economic yes. level to that. And so if you have to mm-hmm. go and acquire significant real estate to be mm-hmm. able to then apply, what you're saying is if you're unless you're incredibly wealthy and you mm-hmm. can go out and you can risk uh, your financial life, mm-hmm. um, don't apply. Mm-hmm. And so what we're saying with this policy is no, we want the best people, and the best people aren't always the people who are incredibly wealthy. We want to make this an open process. Um, that was 
when talking to um, entrepreneurs around the country, like that was a huge barrier. Another mm -hmm. uh, barrier that we learned from, you know, again, traveling around the country, mm -hmm. talking to these entrepreneurs, um, particularly minority entrepreneurs, is that folks would have a difficult time accessing capital. So uh, I had a cannabis banking bill this year to deal with the fact mm -hmm. that because cannabis is still considered a schedule one drug federally mm -hmm. that it becomes very hard to bank mm -hmm. and uh, to bank your proceeds with with um, with this business. And so working with the treasurer's office, we were able to open up the banking space for folks to be able to bank with uh, the treasurer and then also um Credit unions are stepping up. Uh, credit union one okay. stepping up in a big way, saying, "Hey, we'll bank with you." Mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> they see that this is—it's only a matter of time before mm -hmm. this comes off of Schedule One federally. But specifically as it relates to capital, that was a bit of a sidebar. But we have put forth a thirty million dollar uh, cannabis investment fund that social equity applicants will have the ability to access to be able to off. To, to offset half of the startup costs as it relates okay. to licensure, mm -hmm. as it relates to getting started with this industry. Um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a hybrid program, part grant, um, part low interest loans. Okay. Again, looking to what are the thing, what were the areas that you know good entrepreneurs who have awesome ideas, awesome business mm -hmm. plans, but have a capital barrier can't. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Capital barrier, real estate barrier. Those mm -hmm. were uh, two of the bigger issues that came up. Um, we're, cent we're centering social equity in the application process. Mm -hmm. So when you, when, you, when you add all of that, when you look at the social equity applicant points, the $30 million revolving loan fund, when you look at how that's going to offset costs of the application, how you can access this low interest revolving loan fund for building out your business, you know, those are incredibly important steps mm -hmm. that we are taking to say, hey, we are serious. We're not just talking equity, but we're serious about it. Mm -hmm. And we're putting our money where our mouth is. Mm -hmm. And so... Uh, that those those dollars were seeded. So those dollars were seeded from funds that came out of the medical industry. Okay. So that's where that. So mm -hmm. I think a couple of folks had questions in the past. Well, where did that money come from? That money came from the individuals that were. There's a a, a fund that the medical industry has been funding for the last few years. That's where those dollars came from. Okay. So it isn't mm -hmm. like taxpayer. Not, not new money. It's not new money. It's not taxpayer in. money. Right. It is money specifically from the mm -hmm. medical industry. Okay. Good. Now, I, I want to close with this. Uh, we're done already? Uh, yeah, we're, we're coming up on a half hour here, I think. <laughs> uh, the uh, NPR Illinois did a feature on you and Representative Cassidy and, and Senator Staines and Hutchinson. Uh, they, they called you guys the, the marijuana moms. Yeah. Uh, and, and there's really something there, I think, about, about four very involved, savvy female legislators working this bill at, at different stages themselves of, of parenthood in different communities, mm -hmm. so, sort of seeing things from different lenses, all of whom are, are friends throughout this process. It, talk about that, that story <laughs> and, and sort of your experience working with those other three women on the um, bill. First off, uh, we are definitely girl gang, girl gang, girl gang. <laughs> <laughs> but there we started, we started this process, um, one – Friends, mm -hmm. which and when you're friends with when you're friends with someone, 
it makes it easier to have the difficult conversations. Mm-hmm. Um, when, when talking about criminal justice, community reinvestment, um, equity, and why that's important, mm-hmm. the upside is we didn't have to we didn't have to say, "Hey, here's why equity is important," mm-hmm. right? I mean, it would be hard, it'd be hard to be friends with it'd be hard for me to be friends with somebody that I have to explain <laughs> why equity is important. They got that. Mm-hmm. What what was helpful for I know for me and for Senator Hutchinson was having um, having friends that when there were issues mm-hmm. and there were always issues, explaining the why or why something wasn't going to work or why something didn't feel the way that this should feel. Um, when you're friends, those conversations can happen much easier and you don't have to worry about people getting their feelings mm-hmm. hurt. Um, we had a lot of those tough conversations yeah. along the way. And you um, ended as friends. And we ended and we ended as much better friends than mm-hmm. we even started. And we were really good friends to start this off. But um, those three women are, they will always be incredibly special to me uh, for different reasons. We share the fact that all of us um, have children. I have the I'm of the of the crew. I have the youngest, mm-hmm. the little one. I have a four year old. I think the oldest. I think Heather has a child who's almost thirty. So we're talking mm-hmm. about children from Broad the ages, range. yeah, from mm-hmm. four to thirty, mm-hmm. teenagers, baby adults who mm-hmm. are. Doing adult things, but calling mom and dad for money every day, which, which is which is part of this because you guys set a twenty-one age limit on this, yes. and and you know, you're looking at some of those things on you know what are kids going to experience in in high school on on these issues. What was incredibly interesting was you know I remember having this conversation about you know not wanting to send the wrong message, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Um, and the reality of it is is that as we're talking as moms. If there was ever anyone that wants to protect your family and protect your children, it's their moms. Mm. And there's no better way than to protect your children than to put government right there in the middle, right? And so right now, kids can get access to marijuana easier than they can get access to how to do almost anything else. Mm -hmm. There's there's no shortage Mm -hmm. of marijuana if kids want to get their hands on it. But what we're doing by taxing and regulating it, it is going to be far more difficult. Youth use um, has gone down in all the states that have legalized Mm -hmm. because the illicit market is completely driven out. If they Mm -hmm. do it in the right way, if they don't overtax, um, there's no reason for there Mm -hmm. to be an illicit market anymore. And so once there's no longer an illicit market, you know, your kid's not going to be able to get into a dispensary with a fake ID. It's Mm -hmm. not going to happen. So the ability to just be able to get you know, marijuana off the street or however people get mm-hmm. what they get, those opportunities will be vastly dissipated. Mm-hmm. And so for me as a, as, as a parent who knows that it's important to have real conversations about mm-hmm. um, what cannabis is and what it isn't, right now, cannabis is a schedule one drug. So mm-hmm. we're saying cannabis is the same thing as heroin. Mm-hmm. Well, any kid that knows much is gonna tell you they're not the same thing, though. Mm-hmm. And what we have the ability to do is because of this policy, we're on a and this was a very um, as much as equity. It was incredibly important for us to make sure that there was money in the bill to do a vast public education campaign the same way that they did with cigarettes. 
the same way that they've done with alcohol to try to prevent youth use. Mm-hmm. The only the only uh, group where you see vast uh, a vast expansion of usage is those folks between the ages of 55 and 70. I, I thought that was interesting <laughs> that we're seeing more, more older adults into senior citizens who are choosing to use That's now. That's where the big growth is, right? Mm-hmm. So your AARP crew, um, your senior citizen gold club clan, those are the folks mm-hmm. that are, by and large, when we're, we're legalizing, those are the folks that are <laughs> running to the dispensaries. <laughs> it, it isn't kids. And so... Um, that was important for all of us, mm-hmm. right? That we are seeing youth, youth use go down and particularly um, living here in Peoria over the years and seeing mm-hmm. literally people become incredibly ill, even a few folks lose their lives, mm-hmm. participating in this off-brand K2 mm-hmm. synthetic right. marijuana right. space. Um, and that happened during the midst of this conversation. Right. It, was, it was incredibly powerful and, and informing, again, as a mom, Mm-hmm. who doesn't want to see that happen, certainly not to my child or not, and not to anyone's mm-hmm. child. And yeah. so we, if we don't want to see that happening, we have to regulate this industry. It's not going anywhere. You have the whole country of Canada sitting on top of us. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that is entirely legal. Um, Ten states across the country that have gone mm-hmm. recreational. With a few others in the pipeline. With still. a few others in the pipeline. And I hope mm-hmm. that they look at um, Illinois as a model. That's what I'm hearing from mm-hmm. um the uh, the word on the the word on the legislative streets mm-hmm. <laughs> throughout the country is that Illinois is going to be used as a model mm-hmm. as as it relates to not just how you you know put a paragraph on a ballot mm-hmm. and and the people say yes or no but actually how you do it how you implement this policy how it impacts people how it impacts communities and the good that you can do as a result of this policy I know the state of California did it through ballot measure. And then they try to come back around and do some of the equity center things, do some of the criminal justice things, um, do some of the public education stuff that we're going to mm-hmm. be doing. But once the industry is already created, the cake's already baked. Right. 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 And so it's hard to come back and unwind some of those things. So, you know, we're only the second country in the nation that's done it through um, through the legislative process. Mm-hmm. The only other state that did it through the, leg- through the legislative process was Vermont. Um, Vermont is incredibly homogenous, mm-hmm. so they don't have to do the things that we have to do in this mm-hmm. melting pot that we call Illinois mm-hmm. when we want to be inclusive. All right. Excellent. Well, Jahan Gordon-Booth, thank you very much for coming in, and we'll look forward to seeing how this rolls out over over the, the first six months here on, on the expungements and then after legalization on January 1st. Thank you. I appreciate, um, one, I appreciate you taking the time and having interest in mm-hmm. this issue. But I also want to say an extra special thank you to you and to the PJ Star for looking at this issue um, as though we are in 2019, mm-hmm. right? And not, and not like 1952. I, I cannot tell you how proud that makes me coming from Peoria, knowing that we have folks at the table who are talking about this in a real way. Um, the impact that it has on folks, particularly those that come from disproportionately impacted areas, black and brown communities that have been um, completely left behind Mm -hmm. in some regards. And the work that you all have done to highlight the issues of disparities, because the only way to heal the wounds that exist is we have to stop concealing them. Mm -hmm. We have to stop pretending like they don't exist and we have to put them, we have to put the dead fish on the table and deal with it. And so I want to thank you for 
and, and the paper for using your platform to highlight some very real issues that if it weren't for the fact that you guys have leaned into this work, it would make the work that I'm trying to do so much harder. So thank you so mm-hmm. much. Well, thank you. And we're going to keep trying to cover those things in, in the months and years to come. Thank too. you. Thank you. Just going to run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts.